News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. I think we can all agree that at some point in our lives we've been angry. Maybe it was during traffic. Maybe it was at work, at home. But have you ever stopped to think about the history of anger and what is actually happening in your brain, in your body when you get those feelings? Well, my next guest has a very interesting insight into that. Dr. Thomas Dixon is the director of the Centre for the History of the Emotions at Queen Mary University of London and also the host of the podcast the sound of anger and he joins me now to talk a little bit more about this thank you so much for being here my pleasure i think everybody can relate to anger uh, has some relationship with anger but this is fascinating looking back at kind of the traditional notion of anger and and deconstructing some of those assumptions about that can you talk a little bit more about it Sure. Yeah. I mean, I got interested in anger for my own personal reasons, too, in that I hate getting angry. It really, uh, I don't enjoy it at all. I don't find any benefit in it. You know, some people find it maybe cathartic or even enjoyable or politically necessary. I'm just very uncomfortable with anger. I hate the way it makes me feel. And so I was curious about my own experience. And as a historian and someone who was looking at the history of emotions, I thought, well, I'll try and find out how how's anger changed over the centuries. And I guess the first big thing that I found out is there's there's no one emotion called anger that we can trace through all cultures and all times and places. There are sort of a family of irate, vengeful, irritated emotions of very different kinds that different cultures have, have kind of talked about. And when you talk about it, it's an interesting way of looking at it because I, I know there's we, there's that phrase anger management, and mm-hmm. I'm sure you're not the only person that doesn't like that feeling or, or that feeling of kind of losing control and not really knowing why it is that that we're getting so angry. And and I, I would imagine that comes into the better understanding of it and what's actually happening to us. Yeah, I do think that learning about the sort of history and philosophy of emotions can be quite therapeutic, actually. I mean, one of my favorite historical texts, which I've enjoyed reading, is Seneca. The Roman Stoic philosopher wrote a book called De Ira, sort of on rage or on anger. Um, And he describes um, rage... Uh, as a, a polymorphous evil. He says this. Mm. there are a thousand varieties of this polymorphous evil. And he sees it as a kind of illness, a kind of madness, um, which I think is a helpful perspective. I mean, my own perception of, of the kind of culture that I live and, and move in today is that anger has quite a good reputation. You know, it, it, people think it's an energy and it's useful for political change. And I'm not saying that's always wrong. But Seneca has this, this whole book about rage and why it's this madness. And I identify more with that point of view, I guess. Um, and I think what you believe about your emotions massively changes how you experience them. So, for example, if you believe there's nothing you can do about them, um, that's really going to make it quite likely that there is nothing you can do about them. Um, but if you read Seneca or some other psychological therapeutic text of your choice, it might give you more of an understanding that your emotions represent your beliefs Um, about the world and that you can actually change those it may be difficult but you can change the way you see the world and you might come to see that your anger is not necessary and maybe not even healthy you use the word rage there as well would you say those two are interchangeable anger and rage uh no i mean i I deliberately use the word rage because i think so seneca's text is called de ira which is normally translated of anger 
but I deliberately call it of rage because I actually think what he's talking about is distinct from modern anger. The kind of rage that Seneca's talking about is really extreme. It manifests itself with people grinding their teeth, stamping their feet, even foaming at the mouth. It also leads to them seeking quite dramatic and sometimes very bloodthirsty acts of revenge against the people who have harmed them. And he means all of that when he talks about era. Modern anger is a is a different thing, I think. I, I'd be interested to know what you and, and your listeners think. But when I think of anger in modern English, I don't immediately think of revenge. It might, it might come up as part <laughs> of the emotional experience. But for ancient Greek and Roman writers, the, the passions they are talking about, which are similar to modern anger, they're all about revenge. It's a kind of honor culture. And it's all about you must avenge the injury that has been done to you. Hmm, yeah, that that is an interesting way in looking at the, that historical uh, notion of anger. Uh, for me, the the first thing that came to my mind was was frustration, and I thought of you know being in traffic, being in a traffic jam where somebody cuts you right. off when you're driving, and yeah. it's not that I want to go after that person, but I do get very frustrated and angry. Yeah, exactly, and I think. Um, I mean, some people do, I think, experience that as an, a desire for revenge. And then um, you see them, you know, herring off from the traffic lights trying to, you know, get their own back on the driver who has offended them. So there definitely is a space for revenge in, in road rage. But I think if we all have like different words and different nuances for these emotional experiences, then we'll all become more emotionally literate. And I suppose that's what I'm trying to do with the history of anger and the podcast was to try and look at these varieties of irritation, frustration, resentment, rage, fury. There's loads of English words as well as words in other languages for these different shades of feeling. And I think I think one of the dangers of modern psychological and therapeutic ways of talking is this rather easy assumption that we've all got the same emotions. Um, and we've maybe even all got these same basic five or six emotions. Um, like if um, your listeners have seen the movie Inside Out, you know, there's this brilliant film about a girl who's controlled by the five emotions in her brain. And that is a fun film, but it's not a great representation of the variety of human experience, I don't think. Right. And interesting the way people deal with it as well in that I know there are, there are some people that, that scream in anger all the time. There are others that, that don't scream or maybe keep it bottled in rather than, than letting it out. We can probably all think of somebody who we would associate as, oh, that person is quite angry. Uh, but do you look at kind of how people, how people process anger and, and how that varies? Yeah, that's really interesting. One of the things I came across historically was that this... The, the idea you've just sort of hinted at and that we come across quite often probably that um, if people aren't expressing their rage, then they're repressing it um, and that maybe it's it's seething away within even if they don't realise it. That's loosely, you know, a very Freudian idea. It's a psychoanalytic idea um, which came to prominence uh, in the 1960s, 70s, um, became the kind of mainstream view that we are still living with which can be very irritating you know, when you are saying, I'm not angry, I'm really not angry. And they go, oh, you don't realise it. You don't realise it. <laughs> but deep down, you're like, I'm not angry. <laughs> and then, of course, you are angry because you've been so provoked by this Freudian analysis of, of your, your hidden rage. And I came across some sources of, of um, people writing in the 1970s about how irritating it was, you know, to be, to be told you've got anger whether you know you have or not. And it's this kind of unprovable thing. But definitely people respond respond differently. Some people feel they have got anger and it's repressed. Other people may feel they haven't got anger and who are we to tell them otherwise? But I, I think the more we can acknowledge that variety, 
the better. And of course, you know, we're increasingly aware of neurodivergence and the fact that not everybody is neurotypical. And that's even more reason to recognize that people do not all feel the same way. Do you think we are getting a better understanding of anger? I think the best... I think my contribution to this is to say there is no such thing as anger in the singular. There's no it. There's no one emotion that we're trying to understand. So I'm just constantly, my job as I see it, every opportunity I get is to say it's not just one emotion. So the way that I try to understand anger is to say there's no single anger. There's this big family of, as I've said, sort of irate, vengeful, irritated feelings that are weird and wonderful. And yes, we can see, we can see similarities in that family. But I try to look for difference more than similarity. I see that's my role as a historian of emotions. Well, it's uh, such an interesting thing to look at and looking at how you uh, have dug into this and researched this. Uh, Professor Dixon, we'll leave it there for today. But thank you so much for being here. It's my real pleasure. Thanks a lot, Joe. This is Mornings with Simi. Time to check in with show contributor Scott Chance. Good morning to you. Hi, Jill. How are you? Very well. Yourself? Pretty good. Thank you. I was excited by this uh, new liquor licensing news that you were speaking about this morning with John. Uh, Council uh, has basically decided that they're going to make it easier for bars and other places, it turns out, to sell liquor in, in the city, which I think is a good thing, right? Right. It's expanding it, trying to kind of update some of the rules and some of the regulations that have really kind of hindered those businesses expanding. Yeah, because I think here in B.C. it has always sort of felt like our liquor rulings and laws and licensing stuff is a bit strict. You talk to anyone who's tried to get a liquor license or runs a place, you can only have so many seats, you can only be so close to certain other liquor establishments. Uh, and all of that stuff has kind of been updated, which is which is a good move, I think. Uh, and I know that you were talking with John about, I think this is one of the more interesting parts of this, that like places like spas and Mm -hmm. barber shops and stuff will be able to serve booze. I have been offered a whiskey every time I get my haircut for like the last 10 years at the place that I go to. And I know that when um, my my daughter's mom goes to a hairdresser, she always has champagne. When she goes to the spa, there's always champagne there. And I think you guys were talking, I don't know if it's that they're it's because they're not selling it and right. they're just kind of offering it or if it's just one of these don't ask, don't tell things. <laughs> but that for sure is a thing. Oh, yeah. Um, so this is cool. This is kind of like a step forward. But as uh, I was mentioning or you were mentioning before the break, is this far enough? And I ask that because if you have been anywhere else in like the whole world, you know how <laughs> sort of backwards our, our liquor laws and licensing and it just feels so archaic here in BC. Like if you go across the border to the States, you can get liquor anywhere, like at a grocery store, like you stop for gas and you can get a six pack of beer and bring it home with you. And it turns out that Ontario is actually moving in that direction as well. Doug Ford, the premier of Ontario is expected to announce today that convenience stores will be allowed to sell beer and wine there, which I'm, I'm glad that this is happening because hopefully this will, you know, make people in BC sort of take notice and go, oh, maybe we should be doing that too. Like, why don't we do that? (laughs) 
<laughs> it's an interesting question. And yeah, he's he's taking that bold step. I mean, there's still the, the red tape and it still goes through the beer store, through government, but at least he's opening it up. Like you said, grocery stores, convenience stores, gas stations, beer, wine, cider, those pre-mixed cocktails. I mean, why not? I totally, totally agree with this. You know, like we have seen... Uh, some instances where there's been wine and maybe beer in grocery stores in in various capacities, but it's not like a normal thing. I think you just want to know that you can go to uh, the grocery store and get whatever you need without having to go and jump through several hoops. And I also, not to like make it this huge moral thing, but I think that like just let the adults decide what they want to do. You know, mm-hmm. like we have these laws in place. You can't buy booze if you're not 19. You have to show ID and that should be enough, shouldn't it? I think that if it's like, if you can go down the street to get it, why can't you get it here? Uh, and just like, I feel like the government doesn't trust us. I feel like a child, you know, when I have to go to like a special place to get alcohol when, you know, you cross the border where, it, you know, people feel way less responsible than we do. And they're just handing it out willy nilly. <laughs> like anyone can just go get a beer, whatever they want. Yeah, it's uh, and this the announcement that came out of Vancouver, you might remember a few weeks ago, they would put out this big thing about how they were expanding it to grocery stores. And it sounded great. But the fine print in that said, but we're not increasing the number of licenses that right. that are out there for grocery stores. So the existing ones will just be shared. Maybe they'll move, but not expanding, which is ridiculous. I don't know, Scott, if you've ever been to the, the Safe on Foods in Tawasin. Yes. It's, I mean, and again, it could only be BC wine. That's fine. I'm happy to support BC wineries, but it's so lovely. You just pick up whatever wine you want with your groceries, go through the checkout. You can use your Save on More points if you want to. Yeah, yeah. It's very civilized. Why can't that just be happening everywhere? Yeah, and again, I think that it's kind of just this... Uh, this control thing, and don't get me wrong, I don't think that the government is, like, trying to control, like, it's not like, I just, treat us like adults, you Mm -hmm. know? I don't think that it's this huge issue. I don't think that uh, young kids are going to start being able to get booze from the liquor store. I don't think, I don't really see any sort of issues with this. So I'm glad that we're sort of moving in this direction, but I also like that Ontario, hopefully, has, like, lit a fire under BC to sort of say, okay, we've done this, but we can keep moving and keep doing more, you know, like how about in Las Vegas where you can just get a beer and walk down the street? You know, I mean, we had it on the beaches and then it's like gone now. It was only for a limited time. Like, let's go, Vancouver. Let's I mean, get on board here. I mean, it's gone technically, but is it really gone? Well, that's what now. I mean. That's yeah. what I mean. Like, yeah. let's just it's all happening anyway. So let's just call it what it is. Right. Yes. Thank well, you. This is Mornings with Simi. It is time once again to check in with the Vancouver Suns, Vaughn Palmer, with the view from Victoria. Good morning to you. And good morning, Jill. And I see Premier David Eby has got a media event starting at 9 o'clock at the site of the new St. Paul's Hospital. Care to guess what (laughs) the first media question to him will be? I uh, dare say it might not be about the hospital. No, uh, you know, (laughs) The government communications people who manage these things always try to suggest to reporters, well, why don't you ask about the event first, since we went to all the trouble of staging this tour of the new hospital and all that. And you got your hard hats and your work boots on because that's the only way you can get in. And so why don't you just hold your questions back on all the other stuff? I don't know if that's going to work today. There is a very, very hot question out there, Jill, and it's what's the NDP government's response to the request from Vancouver City Council 
for the government to amend the Vancouver Charter to allow Ken Sim and his council majority to obliterate the elected Vancouver Park Board. That is one hot topic. And if it's not the first question to the Premier, I expect it'll be there in the press conference. So you have to know he's expecting that question as oh, yeah. well. And and so so trying to figure out, because you and I have been talking about this, so many people have been trying to figure out what discussions have they already had? What's he going to do with this? Uh, I'm, I'm curious because I don't, I don't think, I mean, I would be shocked if we got an actual clear answer and this is what we're going to do. But how is he going to play this one? Well, um, <laughs> what I'd love to hear the Premier say is, unlike Ken Sim and his council majority, we're not going to rush into this thing. <laughs> and we're going to look over their request and think it over. And we've got two months now uh, before the legislature sits. In fact, more than two months. And we'll get back to you on the request. But, you know, we have to look at all the implications. So that would, I don't think that's what he's going to say, but I think it would serve Ken Sim right if that were the Premier's answer. I think what you're going to hear, Jill, is as you suspect, we're going to hear the Premier say, uh, you know, the request just got passed by Van City Council last night, and we're going to study it. And we'll get, you know, uh, make a statement eventually provincial government has to think about the implications. That, you know, is a departure, I would say. Even that's a departure. I think <clears throat> the initial reaction inside the New Democrat government was, if that's what the mayor wants, we're going to give it to him because we get along with the mayor. He's worked with us on housing and other things. He'll wear the controversy. We won't. And I think the initial inclination was to say yes. I think now, today, you'll hear a more guarded response. I think the Premier would be wise to just suss out how serious the opposition is going to be on this issue, because it's still building. I mean, it has already, I think, the pushback to the mayor's decision has been stronger than I expect the mayor expected. I think he may be a bit taken aback at how strong the pushback is. But there are still people out there, Jill, who wonder, you know, how much of this is former park board commissioners and current ones worried about, you know, the loss of the jobs there and, and how much of it is a serious public concern about something that looks on the face of it undemocratic. These people were elected as a park board. Ken Sim didn't campaign on a campaign to get rid of the park board. In fact, said the opposite. So there's a lot of controversy there, but I think it's early to say how long it's going to last and how high the wave of opposition is going to build. Do you think it's possible or could the premier say, okay, you've done this, you've you've gone and voted in favor of of getting rid of this, but we need more information. You're saying there are millions in cost savings. Where are the the cost savings? Come back to us with more details. Well, that's a possibility, although, you know, I think... If we take the Surrey policing thing as the model that the New Democrats would like to avoid, then saying as little as possible is wise. Don't get involved in it. You know, uh, say, yeah, well, we look forward to your request and we'll take it into consideration. And of course, they'll have to ask the public service to draft the necessary legislative change and look at the implications of that. 
Um, there was a, one of the things that came up last night, and I'm just hearing this on uh, the global news this morning, is somebody said, have you consulted indigenous people? Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole change in provincial legislation and governance in BC as a result of the adoption of the United Nations principles four years ago, that legislation passed unanimously. Well, one of the fundamentals of that is you don't do stuff that affects land use and public policy without consulting Indigenous people. So, Jill, that might be another grounds on which the provincial government could say, <clears throat> have you done this? But I, I think, you know, at the moment, you're going to get a fairly guarded, cautious answer from Premier Eby, which is we'll wait till the letter of request arrives at the Premier's office and we'll look at the implications and get back to them on it. I don't think, I don't think the provincial government wants to be taking sides on essentially a political dispute that's emerging in the city of Vancouver. Not at this point, although, you know, and we talked about this yesterday, Jill, one NDP MLA has already weighed in on this. Spencer Chandra Herbert, he's the member for the West End. He was a park commissioner and he was out on social media this week saying he thinks this matter should have been put to the voters in Vancouver, not simply dumped on them after the election. Continuing now with Vaughn Palmer. And Vaughn, we talked about when Chief Coroner Lisa LaPointe announced that she would be retiring, but we now have a few more details about that. Yes, when the Chief Coroner announced she would be retiring, uh, she announced that last week, she said she won't be seeking a, when her third term expires in February, she's retiring. She also said, I'm staying on the job and I'm going to continue. Well, (laughs) she doesn't quite put it in those words, but she continues telling the government what it doesn't necessarily want to hear. So we got a chilling statement yesterday from the chief coroner, and she framed it by saying, we don't usually put out a report on drug overdoses and deaths in the holiday season uh, out of sensitivity to families and so forth. But she said, "I I have to come out and tell the public what is going on. And Joel, even those of us who've been following this thing for years, that release is chilling. The coroner says, we've gone from averaging six deaths a day to seven deaths a day. We've had 200 deaths in the last seven weeks. We are headed here in British Columbia for the worst ever death toll from poisoned drugs and drug overdoses. And she couldn't remain silent. She said, "You, we need to go back over all of our warnings, all of our reasons not to take drugs alone, all the reasons to be super careful. Uh, it, when you read it, you just go, no, the New Democrats now are in their eighth year in government and things are getting worse. This is a challenge to the government and also like everything that has been done in since this was declared a public health emergency before the NDP took office, everything that's done by the New Democrats, things are still getting worse. This is, uh, 
I don't know what to say about it other than I think the Premier's going to get asked about this today as well. And and that's, I mean, it's shocking and not that we were getting used to the fact that it was six deaths a day, but we've heard that so many times. The fact yeah. that it's now seven. So clearly, whatever it is we're doing, it's not working. No. And Lapointe also, you know, she didn't say much when she announced her uh, she wouldn't be seeking or wouldn't be staying, she, that she'd be retiring when her third year term is up. She didn't say too much. She said she was frustrated that a lot of the advice she's given on the problem of drug overdoses and what to do about it and safe supply wasn't taken. Uh, she's now given a, a kind of an end of career year end interview to Dirk Meisner at the Canadian press. And it's been carried in a number of news organizations. And the portrait she paints there is of someone who's frustrated, upset, disappointed. She says she tries to be a positive person, but so much of her advice has been ignored or politicized or met with ad hoc uh, results. She refers to that rather shocking news conference she had last month where Lapointe put out a report from an expert panel saying that the overdose problem, safe supply of drugs problem, so bad that the government should begin granting access to safe supply drugs without prescription. And what happened was that before Lapointe finished a press conference, in fact, before she even started it, the government distributed a news release to reporters attending the news conference, rejecting her recommendation. When Lapointe went to questions from reporters, the first question she got was, well, what do you think of the fact that the government's already rejected your recommendation? And she said, I haven't seen that. Yeah. She was caught completely blindsided. And what she said about that in the Canadian press interview is she wonders if the government even read, read that report before they drafted the news release, right? Mm -hmm. it, that's how frustrated she is. So, you know, uh, you can disagree with uh, her recommendations and all of that, but this is somebody who's been in the front lines of the fight against overdoses and urging safe supply for years and this is a pretty chilling indictment of the NDP's record on this. And, and, and like you said, too, you can disagree with it. And certainly there are, are differences or, or people who are opposed to this idea of safe supply. But you can disagree with it all you want. But these numbers, so the, these numbers tell the story. And, and if it's not working, then what do we do? What, what happens next? And like you said, yeah. eight years. What have you done to try and make this better? Well, you know, we go back again to 2017 and the New Democrats said our solution is we're going to establish a standalone ministry for mental health and addiction. They're going to go full time onto that. There were people in the healthcare system who said, all you're going to do is silo. All you're going to do is create two ministries dealing with the problem because most of the programs are still in the health ministry. No, this is the way to go. Well, we've now had the ministry for, as I said, we're in the eighth year. We have our third minister, uh, Jennifer Whiteside, now, is, and that's who rejected LaPointe's recommendation out of hand. Again, uh, you know, if, if the numbers are getting worse, 
I know the government, Adrian Dix, came out this week and said, well, you know, we have uh, we listen carefully to Lisa LaPointe and her recommendations, but there are other voices out there and we're doing a great deal. And the government can point to all the money it's spent on the issue. But increasingly, we're into territory where we go, well, everything you've done, things are getting worse. So is there something we should be doing that we're not doing that might turn the corner on the overdose numbers? And is it is it fear of backlash from the public? Is it money? What is it? Do you think yeah, that there's such know, hesitation? Yeah, that's a good question, Jill. And I I do have some sympathy for the government on one aspect of this. Uh, the the public backlash over open drug use, over what happens in your neighborhood if you have the bad fortune to be in the neighborhood of one of these safe injection sites. Uh, the general feeling that uh, the supply of safe drugs is being, you know, there's evidence of it. The government disputes the evidence, but there's evidence. It's been reported, I think, credibly, in my view, that the safe supply is being diverted back into the illicit market. The story we had, again, documented that uh, one of the agencies delivering the safe supply, and the government said they were breaking the law, was buying the stuff on the black market, which means from criminal sources. I, I think there are a lot of flaws in the delivery system. There are a lot of reasons why the public wasn't behind this. And I think that's why the New Democrats backed off. I think that's why they hesitated. I would say the view of advocates, and particularly Lisa LaPointe, is that it's the government's job to persuade the public to support things that may be counterintuitive or that maybe um, there isn't public support for and people need to understand the reasons. I, I can see that point, but, you know, we're coming to an election year, too. And understandable with an election year coming the New Democrats have lost some of their enthusiasm for all of this stuff. Unfortunately for the New Democrats, the numbers are going absolutely the way they don't want to go on the overdose thing. So they may have managed to confer on themselves, Jill, the worst of both worlds. All right. Well, we'll leave that there and we'll have to talk new grading oh, system sure. tomorrow. Vaughn, thank we'll you so much. We'll be back. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, since the legalization and the expansion of sports betting, there has been an increase in the number of post-secondary students who have developed a gambling addiction. These are numbers out of the United States. And joining me to talk more about this is Oliver Staley, writer of Health and Technology and editor at Time magazine. Oliver, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, take us through the numbers, if you can, and, and what you're seeing uh, in the U.S. as far as uh, post-secondary students and gambling addiction. Sure. So one of the interesting things about this is that it is so new that we don't have great numbers yet. There was a study uh, from about 10 years ago that was what we call a meta-analysis. It summed up 17 other studies or surveys of college students, and it found that um, college students in the United States, uh, actually, I'm sorry, this is a global number, not just the United States, but college students around the world uh, tend to be, about 10% of them are addicted to gambling. That's a clinical diagnosis. 
um, which is far greater than the general population. Um, usually, uh, the estimate is about 2 to 5% of people globally are addicted to gambling. So college students may be up to twice or even five times as addicted uh, and, uh, as the general population. Now, this, again, was a, a study that was 10 years ago before we've seen the huge explosion in uh, mobile sports betting, which has happened both in the U.S. and, as I understand it, in Canada in the last few years. So, if anything, that number is now likely to be higher. And is it because the the expansion of that and uh, the the companies, are they specifically targeting people in that age group or post-secondary students? I I wouldn't, I don't, yes and no. I I think they are, um, they are, in some cases, they are, uh, um, marketing to people on their phones. Um, and as you know, um, mobile advertising sort of follows the activities and interests of the people who uh, who use those phones. So if, if people are curious about sports gambling and they're using their phones, they're going to start seeing more and more ads. And the more they participate in sports betting, they're going to see uh, just increased number of ads. And those ads are going to follow them around. So even if they're trying to avoid sports betting apps, those ads are going to follow them on, on Facebook and Instagram and whatnot. And yes, of course, uh, the more you're on social media, the more likely you are to be a young person. Um, but we're also seeing ads, uh, and I'm sure this is the case in, in Canada as well as the U.S., uh, just blanketing all sports, on televised sports on TV. So it's, it's increasingly impossible to avoid a marketing for sports betting. And when we talk about post-secondary students as well and, and the impact, and like you said, that's a, a much higher number of 10% are showing a, an addiction to gambling. I, I would imagine, too, that it's it's more of a financial loss and that we're talking about people that maybe are living with student loans, haven't yet started their careers, so they're not bringing in big salaries, but could be losing a substantial amount of money. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, I think it is... Um uh, it, it has a greater impact on, on people of limited means, for sure, uh, people who don't have. And, you know, particularly for people, young people from lower income families, they may be their first first of their family to go to college. They may be relying on student loans and um, they may be spending that student loan money on, on, on gambling or um, making up for losses elsewhere. Uh, and they don't have a, a familial safety net to fall back on. They don't. They can't ask their parents for help uh, because their parents don't have any money to help them with. So yeah, uh, you know, young people, and particularly young people from um, uh, from lower income backgrounds, are particularly hard hit. Uh, is this getting enough attention, or is it? Or is there reaction to this in that support groups and therapy groups that maybe in the past hadn't really considered post secondary students uh, the, 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 a group that needed more help? Are they recognizing this, or are we seeing these groups reaching out? I think it's very very early days, and it's only from my reporting, uh, call, talking to universities in the United States, they were only beginning to wake up to this reality. Uh, Universities, and this is probably true in Canada as well, uh, have um, fairly developed systems for addressing uh, mental illness, like depression and anxiety, uh, and to a certain extent for dealing with substance abuse. Gambling addiction sort of falls between the cracks, and a lot of universities just don't have a mechanism for catching it, and they don't have a mechanism for treating it yet. Um, And most, you know, it's it's not beyond their ability, but most uh, therapists and counselors on campuses aren't really trained in, addiction, in gambling addiction. Um, and universities, uh, they don't really know how many people have this problem because they're not asking those questions. You know, they, 
they tend to survey students about their mental health, but they've never asked them about uh, gambling addiction yet. And so they're just in the very beginning phases of doing this. Um, And I suspect they're going to have some eye-opening numbers when they conduct those surveys. Well, and it does seem like that, uh, like we're at least starting to get a better picture and and starting to see how much this is having an impact and in many cases a negative impact on this age group. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's, you know, there's, this is a particularly vulnerable age group in part because you have young people who are just leaving home for the first time. They're they're experimenting in, in all sorts of behaviors, uh, some healthy, some less than healthy. Um, but it's there's peer pressure when you're, uh, you know, in, in the U.S. we have a lot of fraternities uh, where young men are get together and they watch a lot of sports together and they start betting on sports together. Um, there's not a lot of um, uh, mechanisms to slow that, uh, particularly when you're surrounded by a, a peer group that's encouraging it. Um, you know, uh, I made a lot of bad decisions when I was in college. <laughs> Many people do. And I suspect, um, you know, one of the problems is gambling addiction. Uh, once it, it gets your hooks in, it's, it's very hard to, to shake off. And it's a problem that could follow them for the rest of their lives. Well, Oliver, it's a very interesting article. Thank you so much for making the time and for coming on the show this morning. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, as you've been hearing on the news, Vancouver police officers have voted overwhelmingly in favor to accept a tentative agreement. This was an agreement reached earlier with the City of Vancouver and the police board. It includes pay raises of 4.5%, one retroactive, and another 4.5% in 2024. So joining us now to talk a little bit more about this is Ralph Kaisers, president of the Vancouver Police Union. Ralph, thank you so much for making the time today. Good morning, and thank you for having me today. Uh, Overwhelming support, I think around 97% voting in favor of this. This is a big pay hike, making Vancouver officers the highest paid in the country. How does that benefit Vancouver residents and taxpayers? Well, what's important, and I think we need to realize, is, uh, well, firstly, as a policing sector, uh, our sector has become very, very competitive, uh, not just here locally, but across the country. Uh, members are trying to fill vacancies or departments are trying to fill vacancies um, and are recruiting and recruiting heavy uh, right across the country. As we saw a couple of months ago, uh, the Calgary police uh, had an information session and were hiring and uh, were had their detectives from their recruiting section here in Vancouver trying to recruit uh, potential applicants from the lower mainland uh, to move to Calgary. And uh, we've seen that from other organizations across the country, too. So we do here in Vancouver, we want to hire uh, the brightest and the best officers we can in Canada. And to make sure we're in a position to do that, we we obviously have to compensate our uh, members appropriately. And when so you mentioned recruiters from Calgary. Have you also had forces within BC, say the Surrey Police Service, uh, other police services trying to take officers from Vancouver? 100%. And, and that's every organization. And you know, we in Vancouver, we have a large recruiting section. We certainly were recruiting, and we've taken and have had members from other departments locally apply to our department. Now, what I will say, too, is part of our uh, negotiated deal, uh, we made significant improvements to our uh, maternity and our parental leave. And what's interesting with that is I do know, not mentioning names of any departments, but we did have a recruiter from another department email each of our young female members 
suggesting to them that if they came to their department, uh, they were going to be in a better position financially because they they had better maternity and parental leave than we did at the time. And why can't you name that department? I I don't think that's fair. Okay. Uh, so, so, So in doing this then, does this make it on par or is it better than what potentially what those officers were being offered? Uh, yes. Well, and part of the thing is, too, it, it's whether or not someone would be willing to uproot from the organization that they're working in and going to another department. There's other departments that have the same uh, maternity and parental leave than we did. We actually had fallen uh, behind a lot of our, our, our competitors when it came to maternity and parental leave. And it was something that we as a union have been pushing the organization for years to do. Uh, And obviously, we could not get those improvements uh, without the support of a a city that was willing to pay for those improvements. And again, looking at the wages, the 4.5 and 4.5, the benefits that you mentioned, uh, that that, that there are much better or enhanced benefits in this contract, it does trigger that clause, though, in Surrey. So the Surrey Police Service now is able to go back and say, well, this is what Vancouver has. They're the highest paid in the country. We want that, too. Where does that end? If, If every department, every year, you're upping it to become the highest paid in the country, and this triggers clauses with other departments... How? At what point does that stop? Because it all comes back to the taxpayers having to pay the bill. 100%. Uh, I can't speak specifically to the contract that was negotiated uh, by the Surrey Police Union and their police board and city at the time, uh, and them using a Me Too provision. That, the, the Me Too provision is kind of unique, and Surrey's not the only department that has it here in B.C., uh, there are other departments that also have Me Too provisions that are linked to us or to other departments of comparable size in BC. Um, and I say it's unique because we don't see this anywhere in any of the other provinces. And I, and I personally, on a personal level, I would like to see the Me Too provision stop. And I would like to see uh, other departments negotiate their deals and not uh, rely on what Vancouver gets specifically uh, to kind of end their collective bargaining. Right, because if if there's no cap on it or if, or if it continues, is it not just a race to continue being on top and kind of a race to bankruptcy? Uh, I wouldn't say a race to bankruptcy. I, I, I mean, as a sector, we have to be paid appropriately for the work that we're doing. Um, our, the work we do is very dangerous. And of course, as we all know, by way of inflation in the economy and everything else, Vancouver and the lower mainland is, is literally the most expensive place to live uh, in Canada. Um, Our members need to be compensated appropriately, and the economy and inflation comes into play there, too. What do you say to some of the concerns that, yes, uh, we we absolutely need officers, we want our officers to be well-paid and to be doing this work, but we also uh, know that this is a council, a mayor, uh, who promised to hire not only officers, but mental health workers and nurses to work alongside to deal with that as well. Is enough being done, or does this contract even look at that and look at the need for, for kind of enhanced policing, that there are other issues that maybe police officers aren't the best people to be dealing with? I could talk about this topic for hours, so I'll keep it as short as I can. Um, it is interesting, and especially when you when we start talking about those, those issues that maybe some people think the police aren't the best to deal with. These issues have all been attempted to be dealt with by other organizations, other groups, and by default has fallen onto the police to do those jobs because, A, they weren't able to do it uh, and and, or they just don't have the capacity to do it. 
we, we are more than open and do analysis all the time, evidence-based research on where and how to do things better. If there is a way for some of these positions or some of those jobs uh, that the police are doing uh, that, that would be dealt with by another organization, a lot of the issues would fall on health care, um, then by all means, we need to take a look at that. But we've demonstrated year after year, decade after decade, that we actually do handle these circumstances very, very well. Um, you know, obviously, with, with everything, there, there are mistakes made sometimes. And uh, there, we certainly can learn from those mistakes and make improvements as well. Uh, Ralph Kaiser, we're almost out of time, but uh, do, do you do you agree, though, that it would be beneficial to have those officers, those mental health workers and nurses working alongside police officers? Yeah, well, Vancouver is on the forefront of uh, collaboration with our uh, mental health workers and with nurses and healthcare. We have had had a member partnered up with a nurse for decades already in Vancouver. And of course, those programs have been expanded. We have an an ACT program where we coordinate and collaborate with doctors and nurses and have our members on the road with nurses every day in the city and and do highlight and uh, I don't want to say target, but focus on those people that have severe mental health problems that need to be monitored and ensured that they're on the right track to a successful uh, rehabilitation or uh, getting the help that they need. All right. We are right out of time. Thank you so much, though, for coming on the show. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now, we are checking back in with show contributor Scott Chance. Hello again. Hi, how's it going? Very well. Yourself? Oh, pretty good. Jill, do you get ever, like, anxious at work? You don't strike me as a person who feels like you need um, a lot of external validation. That is correct. And how did you get to be that way? Or were you <laughs> were you always that way? I think I've always kind of been that way. Yeah. Yes. See, and do you think that you are, like, in the minority there? Um, perhaps, yes. I think you absolutely yeah. are. Okay, I yes. think you are. Like, if you even just look around, like, at our team, I think that, and, like, I'll put my hand up for sure. Like, I am a dude who needs external validation. I know that I work well with, like, positive reinforcement. When I'm in a leadership position, I use positive reinforcement. I think that, like, that's the way. But I also realize that I've gone too far, like we've taken it too far. And it's like, tell me I'm good enough. Tell me I'm good enough, right? And this is a thing that's like happening across the workforce. You know, all these companies are doing workplace studies and seeing that this is like a real thing. And people are starting to react to it. And uh, Melody Wilding, she's an author of a book called Trust Yourself. Stop overthinking and channel your emotions for success at work. And she talks a lot about how this like need for constant validation can actually like make things worse for you. So I I got to speak with her and I asked her, you know, like, why is it that we as humans constantly need this validation, especially at work? Yeah. And, you know, I want to be clear that as humans, we we all have a need to feel like we belong and other people respect us and value us. So to some extent, validation is good. But where it starts to get in our way is when we become dependent on it where we feel like we can't make decisions or trust our own judgment unless other people are validating that choice. 
or if you perceive that someone is not happy or pleased with what you have done, that ruins your entire day or your entire week and you ruminate over it. So the problem becomes when that validation starts to dictate your emotions, your thoughts, your behavior. Right. Yeah. And I definitely can, like I said, I can relate to that. I, I, I can see when it is starting to do that. How do we find that, that balance and what are some tips to actually kind of like act that out and stop that sort of need, that train before it gets out of control? Yeah. A lot of this comes down to developing discernment. So one of the things you can do is a simple gut check. When you are faced with a choice, asking yourself, am I, am I doing this because I believe this is the right thing to do or because I want to be seen a certain way? And so that can help you discern whether you're acting out of your true beliefs and values or whether you're doing something to fit into a certain perception. Okay, that actually is really interesting and seems like a pretty good um, cuz I think we do sort of know in our in our gut, right? That like, oh, am I why am I doing this? What's my motivation? Am I just feeling sort of insecure and you know, there's a lot of stuff kind of tied into this and I think one of the things that you have like also written about and that um, a lot of people can relate to is this idea of like layoff anxiety. Um, you know, sort of post COVID, we know that like, tons of companies have been uh, making changes and uh, you know, inflation and budgetary concerns and stuff. And I think we're all equally just like a little bit more uh, concerned about where we stand at our workplace and wanting to know that like our job is secure and the validation is a part of that. Yeah. And I'll also add to that, you know, you were mentioning with COVID and we've seen over the past three going on four years now, this major shift to more remote and distributed work. And when that happens, when there's more ambiguity or we lack, we lack those signals from someone, you know, you get, a, you get a little head nod in a meeting or a pat on the back in the hallway, you get those spontaneous, those more organic signs of approval that you are going in the right direction. But when you're remote or you're only going to, into the office a few days a week, those signals start to disappear and our mind starts to fill in the gap negatively and read into situations. And of course, as you were saying, we're living through such a high threat time and all of those things taken together can, can really lead to this feeling of, of layoff anxiety, of uncertainty, fear of when is the next shoe going to drop. So how, how do we combat that? How do we make sure that when that, like that space, you know, the head nod in the meeting or the little social cue, how do we make sure that that space doesn't fill up with negative thoughts and we fill it up with something more positive? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you three strategies. So the first is to separate fact from fiction. So separate the facts of the situation versus the story you might be telling yourself in your head. So do an honest assessment about the environment that you're in. Are you noticing your company starting to put into place cost-saving measures? Are projects being frozen? Is there a hiring freeze? Are sales down? Is your workload lighter than usual? So those are some questions to help you honestly assess. Could there, is there a factual reason that a layoff might be on the horizon? Or are my fears getting the better of me? So that's number one. Number two is to take constructive action. 
So a lot of this is about using your fears and turning them into fuel. So using this, this time and these concerns that you have to connect with your manager, to get a better sense of how does my work actually connect to what the company's strategic objectives are? Do I have uh, a clear understanding of how my work is affecting the bottom line? And that gives you power because you can either find out that, oh, I actually am at risk, or you can job craft. You can look at how can I start tweaking my, my, my role to take on different projects or responsibilities that do provide me a bit more security. Is there an opportunity to me to, for me to look at possibly changing teams? So take constructive action. And then the last thing I'll say is to use a strategy that's called defensive pessimism, which in simple terms means take your fear out to its extreme. So let's say that you did get laid off. What would you do? Well, what are the exact next steps that you would deal with? For example, would you start working on your resume, update your LinkedIn, reach out to certain people in your network? That exercise, it, it can seem um, quite, <laughs> quite uh, difficult to do or, or maybe, yes, pessimistic to do, but at the same time, it gives you a feeling of control and resilience that you can handle whatever the situation is going to throw at you. That's Melody Wilding. She's the author of Trust Yourself, Stop Overthinking, and Channel Your Emotions for Success at Work. Jill, how good was that interview that I just did? <laughs> right? Well Tell done, me. Scott. Thank Gold you. star for you. Validation. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Scott. You got it. This is Mornings with Simi. We have been talking a lot about the future or if there even is a future for the Vancouver Park Board. We now know Vancouver Council has voted to move forward. They will ask the province to help them amend the charter and that would give them the power to move ahead with abolishing the Park Board, bringing it under the fold of Vancouver City Council. Is that the right move? Are people supportive of this? Or even if you are supportive of it, what do you think of the whole process? Well, more and more people are weighing in on this including B.C. Conservative Party leader John Rustad. And John Rustad joins me on the line now. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me on, Jill. Uh, you put out a news release about this, and I know I've spoken about this. What are your thoughts on how it, things uh, with the Park Board and Vancouver City Council have unfolded so far? Well, I think it's uh, it's messy for sure. I mean, when you've got a, uh, a city council, a mayor and council, that have had these massive tax increases for people in the province, uh, and then they look at the park board and say, well, maybe we can find some savings there. Uh, maybe we can find some efficiencies there by eliminating it and bringing it into council. Uh, the park board, of course, I think it's been around since, what, 1888 or 1890. You know, it was designed to uh, protect Stanley Park and, and has continued its mandate to make sure that those green spaces and, and the recreation facilities you know, are, what, are what's needed for the community in meeting those needs. Now, I think there's there's certainly some issues there, but uh, um, I'm not sure that just straight out eliminating it is the right path, given the, the record that we see at City Council. So do you think then at this point uh, there should be a referendum on the future of it? Well, I'm a strong believer actually in referendums and direct democracy. I think you know, voters are smart. Uh, they're capable of making decisions. Give them the information and let them make a decision. I don't, you know, we saw the example, for example, in Surrey, 
with the policing that went on where the government just made a decision to to force a uh, Surrey police force that created all kinds of problems within the community, huge cost increase that are coming. And I just don't think that that's what uh, voters in, in Vancouver are looking for. Uh, I, a, uh, a referendum on it uh, is a nice, simple way to get the information out to the people and let them make the decision. Would it be a freestanding referendum then, do you think, or something that would be, as, as far as time considerations, it's something that should be put out to the voters in Vancouver, or something that could wait until the next civic election and make it part of the ballot? Well, I think the next civic election, of course, is, uh, what, two years or three years out uh, at this point, so... Uh, that's a long way to wait. Uh, it may have to be that it's a, a standalone, which, of course, then makes it a, a little bit more expensive to do. But like I say, I, I think direct democracy is something that we should be thinking about in this province uh, for, for big issues like this, where we're doing such a significant change to an institution that's been around for you know, 140 years. It would be costly then, uh, but going ahead and doing that uh, ahead of the civic election, which you're right, it's, it's three years away. And we tend to have very low voter turnout when it comes to civic elections. So I, I'm guessing based on that, if we even had a standalone, if there was a standalone referendum in the city of Vancouver, that too would have a pretty low turnout. Is that enough of a mandate then to move forward on such a major decision? Well, I think certainly uh, as, a, as a mayor and council um, that ran an election, they should ru- at least run and say, this is what we're going to do, uh, rather than saying, you know, while we think we can fix it, we're going to run a slate and then come out and say, oh, we can't fix it, we're just going to eliminate it. This is a, it's a big issue. And, you know, lots of people are very concerned about, uh, about the parks and about making sure that they're not going to be uh, used for development. I mean, we have huge pressures with housing and housing availability and housing affordability, there's going to be, you know, it's going to be pretty tempting to start looking at places where you could perhaps add additional housing. And I think you know, that's what the park board was originally set up for, is to make sure that those places would be protected for the people and for the future. Uh, you mentioned the uh, the talk of savings as well, and that's certainly uh, something that was put out when Ken Sim first announced that he was going to be asking the province for the uh, change to the Vancouver Charter. Uh, he's been putting out this idea that it could save millions, but when pushed on it and asked to actually provide those numbers, there have not been any numbers provided that would show, uh, particularly Vancouver taxpayers, uh, would show that there are millions to be saved. Uh, do you think there needs to be more information? Does there need to be more clarity? and actual numbers before a decision is made? Of course, that sort of analysis should have been the first step that's taken. You know, you've got a city right now, um, and, you know, this is municipal politics, of course, but, I mean, you've got a city right now that, my understanding, has got more communications people than the White House does. I mean, there needs to be looked at internally in terms of what the structure is and the cost structure to try to bring that in line. Uh, You know, people just can't afford massive tax increases. And so if there's some savings to be had, there should be, you know, an independent analysis done and look at uh, just, you know, what that will mean. Uh, So that, like I say, people need to have the information to be able to make those decisions. Uh, We certainly, uh, well, we're waiting to hear. We expect that uh, the Premier at an announcement, uh, St. Paul's Hospital announcement at 9 o'clock this morning, will be asked about this. Uh, You have spoken out about this and issued a release on it. Uh, There hasn't been a lot of input from BC United as far as taking a side in this debate. Uh, But even in the New Democrats, uh, we've heard from Spencer Chandra Herbert, who on social media uh, said he didn't think it was the right way to go uh, going forward in abolishing uh, the park board. Why was it important for you to get involved in this debate? 
Well, I looked at this just from that perspective of, you know, from a taxpayer's perspective, making sure that uh, things are done efficiently, but also from a political perspective. As I said, I, I support the idea of more direct democracy, more opportunity for, for voters to be engaged. I think part of the problem uh, we have with vote, low voter turnout is is people feel that, you know, all political parties, all things are the same. And so you don't get the engagement that we needed. And I think, you know, we need to find ways to turn that around. We need to find ways to get more people engaged uh, in what's going on because it has such an impact on people. And where you have big decisions like this regarding a park board, it's a perfect example of why we need to be able to have more more, uh, engagement. So how do you see this playing out? And I, I recognize this is a bit of a hypothetical, but if we do see it playing out the way Ken Sim uh, was alluding to, uh, having already had discussions with the provincial government and, and saying that those, in his mind, were productive discussions, and he had those before he announced this decision, if this does play out in that it comes to the legislature at the next setting in the spring, and it comes to the legislature for a vote for the Vancouver City Council to move forward with this. How do you see that playing out if it comes to the legislature? Well, I think there'll obviously be some debate in the legislature, but you have a, um, a government uh, that um, seems to uh, not have a, put a lot of value in, in what goes on in the legislature. They just push through uh, whatever it is that is, is their agenda to push through, regardless of you know time constraints or anything else. So I, I suspect if, if the government decides they want to eliminate the park board, then that's what the government will do. Uh, however, um, given that this would require legislation, <clears throat> I also looking at the fact that uh, we may very well have an election uh, as early as March, which means that uh, legislation wouldn't be able to come forward this spring. It would have to come forward at a later date, and then who knows which government will be in power at that point. Uh, how, how confident are you? Do, you? do you really think we're going to have an early election after the number of times the Premier has said that's not going to happen? Well, the Premier has set a window for an early election. He's delaying starting back the legislature, and then he's jamming the legislature by having both the throne speech and the budget speech in the same week, and to have them both wrapped up by the end of March. It leaves the window for him to to call an election, or sorry, for the end of February, I should say. It leaves a window for him to call an election in March if he decides to do that. I suspect he'll be looking at the polls closely, and with the rise of the Conservative Party of BC and, and our continual advancement in the polls, uh, he may be getting nervous and decide he wants to go early rather than give us six more months to prepare. All right, John Rustad, appreciate you making the time today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, if you have been out any time after midnight and been somewhere where the skies are very dark, maybe you have seen some of the Geminid meteor shower. It is known as the year's most spectacular celestial event, and it is not over yet. No, we are right in the middle of it. And joining me to talk more about the history of meteor showers and where you might be able to see this one is Dave Kindy, journalist and contributor for The Washington Post. Dave, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, it's always so much fun to be able to look to the skies and see a meteor shower. This one is the Geminid, and I actually saw it uh, um, described as one of the most, I think it was described as one of the most reliable meteor showers. What is it, or can you tell us a little bit more about what are we looking at here when we're talking about the Geminid shower? The Geminid shower occurs uh, every year. Uh, and, and it's related to uh, one of a, a comet passing by. And as it gets close to Earth and in between the sun, uh, the sun causes uh, the heat from the sun causes uh, particles to start to break away from the comet. 
uh, and those become meteors and start streaking through the Earth's uh, atmosphere. And, of course, when that happens, they burn up, and, and that's what we commonly refer to as a shooting star. Most of the, uh, most of the, the shooting stars that we see are related to comets, uh, there are the occasional, you know, space debris that floats through the, the Earth's atmosphere and burns up uh, as an independent shooting star. But uh, most of what you will see uh, comes from, from comets. And I know we, we've often talked about these meteor showers and the history of them as well. And, and people will be familiar with the Leonid or the Perseid. Is this one much different? The, the Geminid is, uh, this one is a little bit brighter this year. They tend to differ uh, in scope from from year to year. Uh, sometimes they can be pretty, you know, uh, uh, I think I, in my article I, I put it as a, a kind of just like uh, plainly remarkable as opposed to uh, being, you know, absolutely spectacular. Um, they you know, this one is going to be uh, very uh, very noticeable. You'll be seeing about 150 um, uh, meteors per mi- uh, per hour uh, during its peak. Hmm. And uh, again, I know people love to be able to get to a spot and see these, which which we will get to. Uh, but when we look at the history of this, well, uh, as well, and some of the, the history of meteor showers, uh, I think we uh, tend to forget just how far back they go, and they do have such uh, interesting histories and stories attached to them. Oh yes, uh, <clears throat> they're they've been well known for millennia. The, the Greeks wrote about them. Um, matter of fact, the, there's the what I wrote about in my article, the Leonid uh, uh, meteor shower, which occurs in, in November, um, is, uh, was, they described it, they saw it coming out of the, the Leo constellation, so hence the, the name Leonid. Um, and you know, the Chinese have written about it uh, over the course of time. You know, most, many societies have seen it and, and written about it. Um, and of course, I don't know if you want to launch into it now. The most spectacular one in recorded history was 1833, the Leonid uh, meteor shower. Well, yes, please, because I know that while we love to look at the skies and think they're they're just they're beautiful to look at now, if you go back to 1833 and some of the other uh, through history, there seems to be that common thread of a lot of people thought that it was a bad thing, that it was uh, an omen, and, and bad things were coming. Exactly. The Leonid of 1833 was so spectacular. Uh, one of the, probably one of those, uh, every, with the Leonid meteor shower, uh, as I said, which occurs in November, every 33 years it gets close, its elliptical orbit brings it very close to Earth and the Sun. And when that happens, you can get a lot of meteors uh, showing up. It's happened throughout the course of history. Uh, as I said, every 33 years, it happened in 1966, it happened in 1999. However, the most spectacular in recorded history was 1833, and it was so, there were so many meteors uh, burning through the Earth's atmosphere uh, that some people thought it was the end, of, the end time had come, that it was Armageddon. Um, they, uh, there, there are estimates that place that in a nine-hour period in, uh, for the Leonids of 1833 that there were as many as 240,000 uh, meteors bur- burning through the sky. One hour period, uh, they believe, as much, uh, uh, more than 70,000 meteors. So you're, you're literally standing outside looking up at the sky, and it probably is, is resembling something close as 
uh, in mourning uh, with, with the number of meteors that are burning through the sky at that moment. Hmm. And I understand, too, that, that go, when, thankfully, moving on from, from everybody thinking this was an omen and this was the, the end of days, they, ha- they have actually been quite helpful in, in studying and in learning more about meteors and, and for, for scientists and for research. Oh, yeah. They, uh, uh, matter of fact, the 1833 um, uh, meteor shower, which actually they refer to as a, more accurately as a meteor storm because it was so intense and so vivid. Um, you know, Joseph Smith of the Mormon Church uh, thought it predicted the, uh, the end time. Uh, scientists realized, well, you know, it, it, it's not the end time. We don't know what's causing it, but let's Let's study it more. And you have people like uh, Dennison uh, Olmsted, who is a professor at Yale, who actually does almost like a crowdsourcing uh, type of activity where he asks uh, people in the, uh, in the public to send, them their observ- send him their observations so he can record them. And the next year he presents a paper to uh, one of the science journals and says, you know, this is what's going on. And even though we don't know what meteors are right now, he says, I suspect that they come from beyond our atmosphere, that they're, they're entering our atmosphere and, and, and this is what's, uh, what's happening. And that led to, to basically modern meteor research uh, or the, the, the field of modern uh, meteor study. And um, it, with, by 1866, when they got this, a similar uh, event occurring, uh, although not, nowhere near as intense as what it was in 1833, they began to suspect that there were other factors at play. Uh, in 1865, a, um, the, the temple, let me make sure I'm saying it right, um, the, 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 uh, the 55P Temple Tuttle um, uh, comet had been discovered, which is now named for the two scientists who discovered a temple in Tuttle. Uh, and they began to attribute this to what was going on with the, with the meteors since it was with the, the uh, comet was coming close to Earth every 33 years. They figured that that had to be the relation and that there was, it was sending you know, material into our atmosphere that was catching fire and, and, and burning up. And uh, as time went on, they learned more about meteors and comets. <laughs> that was another misunderstood phenomenon. <laughs> Well, often believed to portend disaster. <laughs> well, it's so glad that uh, that research was done and uh, some of those myths were debunked. Uh, for the Geminid media shower, where are we as far as it being underway and people, if people still want to get out there and try and catch a glimpse? Sure. We're at the peak now. This is the peak time. Um, the best thing to do uh, is it'll, it, of course, it naturally occurs, occurs at inconvenient hours. Uh, the best time is usually after midnight. Um, you want to go to an area which has the blackest sky as possible, um, there, you know, meaning that there are no lights visible to distract you know, your vision from what's going on. And just look up in the sky because uh, they're predicting as many as 150 an hour. So the, if you're out there, say, between midnight and 2 a.m. on a clear sky, you're going to see meteors. You're going to see shooting stars. All right. Well, you're right. Not the best time unless you happen to be up at that time anyway, but quite a spectacle in the sky. Dave, thank you so much for being with us this morning and talking more about this. Appreciate it. Okay. Well, thank you for having me. Take care. This is Mornings with Simi. 